this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. That's the last time you'll hear me probably make that announcement to turn to 1 Corinthians on a Sunday morning as we come to the end of the book this morning. 1 Corinthians, Christian living in a pagan world. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now and just wave and They'll give you a Bible so you can read and listen. And uh, we want everyone to own a Bible. So if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that's in their house. All the brethren greet you. Kiss one another or greet one another with a holy kiss. I've never seen that in the Bible. So starting next week, our greeters and our, our ushers will just to be prepared. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Oh Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for our time in this book as a whole. Wow, what territory we have covered and what you have built into our relationship with you and our understanding of the Christian life. Thank you for that. And we pray that you would speak to us now in this final uh, time of studying this book on Sunday mornings and, and speak to us the truths that are bound up in this closing and, and what they reveal to us about your heart, Lord, and what's important to you. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to the church. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This passage records the close of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And it's a very beautiful closing, very, very uh, personal closing to uh, the letter. He writes this letter from the church at Ephesus. And he passes on in verse 19 the greetings from all of the other Christians in the city of Ephesus uh, wanting to say, hey, I know you're writing a letter to the Christians there in Corinth. Would you send our greeting along as well? And so he did it. He then went on to, goes on to communicate the personal and the hearty greeting from uh, Aquila and Priscilla and the church that was meeting in their home. Aquila and Priscilla were kind of itinerant ministers in those days. The persecution drove them out of Rome, drove them around the Roman Empire, persecution against Christianity. But wherever they went up, wherever they ended up where the Lord took them, they'd always start a church in their home. And, of course, in those days they didn't have church buildings like this. And uh, churches met small groups within homes, and they were always faithful to do that. They heard the letter was being written, and they said, chime in and let them know that we heartily uh, greet them as well. He goes on further to tell them to greet one another with a holy kiss. And the idea is that when they come together and meet, that they would greet one another warmly, genuinely, express 
a real concern for uh, one another and the well-being of one another as Christians. In much of the rest of the world, people still greet one another with a kiss. And so you go to some parts of the world, and it's a kiss on one cheek, a kiss on the other cheek, and then they're done. But sometimes you then go to another part of the world, and you think they're done after two kisses, and you move away, and there's a third kiss. Now you got all offended, or you hit them in the forehead while they were coming around. You're ready to go on about your business. I watched a little bit of the Tour de France this year. And at the end of the different stages, uh, the winner of the race or the winner of the stage or the polka dot jersey or the best young rider or whatever, every day they get a little trophy if they uh, lead in those areas. And these French women come up and they hand them the trophies and then kiss them. And it's a, it's a three-kiss thing. So apparently that's what they do in, in France. So we don't do that so much in our culture. Um, what we do is we give people a good hearty handshake and sometimes grip their forearm at the same time and look them in the eye and, in the eye and we smile and, um, and that communicates our warmth. How are you doing? We care about you and uh, good to see you. And so that, that's what he's saying should mark our fellowship with one another. Paul then communicated in verse 21 that while the bulk of the letter he had simply dictated to a secretary that was with him, uh, one of his traveling companions. He dictated it. That person wrote. Paul had some eye problems, and maybe that affected some of that. But now at the uh, end of the letter, in verse 21, he then finishes the letter off in his own handwriting. And uh, just as kind of a personal expression toward them. You can imagine on the Sunday night at the church at uh, Calvary Chapel there in Corinth or where whatever they called the church. But when the letter was read there and they come to the end of the letter and now it's in Paul's actual handwriting at the end. Anybody that saw that, you know, here you're seeing the very handwriting of the Apostle Paul. If you, you could get a lot on eBay if you still had that, uh, had that today. Really, uh, you know, remarkable, but that personal touch that Paul wanted to add to that. And then he went on to declare in verse 22 that if anyone doesn't have the love of, does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And in doing so, he is strongly warning uh, the church at Corinth against, against coming under the influence of anyone that doesn't love Jesus. He's not saying that everybody who's not a Christian is on the, on the search for meaning and purpose in life and, who, you know, who is God and, and all. Uh, if they don't love Jesus right now, then let them all just go to hell. That's not what he's saying there. He's saying let them all be accursed. That wasn't the heart. The Apostle Paul gave his life to share the gospel with people so that they might be saved. He had a tremendous Love not only for Christians, but the whole world. He knew what it was to be a Christian. He knew what it was to not be a Christian. He loved everybody. And he knew concerning God that God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So he's talking, it appears here, specifically about within that local fellowship, for those who know the gospel, they've rejected the gospel, still want to be an influence within the gospel, let them be anathema, let them be accursed. Now, we do know that if a person doesn't love the Lord, doesn't put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin, then that person is accursed because we are already 
accursed as descendants of Adam and Eve. We're already uh, doomed because of our sin. It separated us from God. So uh, there, is, there is a sense in which all of that is very true and it's in its own uh, right as well. But Paul's attitude wasn't cavalier toward those who were lost. He seems to be talking about being careful about a certain kind of person in the church. He then encouraged him in verse 23 in the greatness of the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Have you noticed that God's, uh, the grace in Jesus Christ is great toward us? Yes. You made it another week and his grace is the explanation. And finally, he reassured them of his personal love for them. In verse 24, Paul had had to say some very hard things to this church. Very direct, very pointed, uh, very hard for them to read, very hard for them to hear. And Paul wanted them to know that I still love you. I still care about you. And he didn't want them to hear these things and wonder if Paul's like, okay, I'm sick of you, I'm through of you. I can't believe a church could have so many problems. Now, I never want to hear from you again. Now, he, he knew that... People could be sensitive in that way, and he reassured them of his love and of his uh, deep commitment uh, for them. I want to focus most intensively upon the three words that in Paul's closing that I skipped over in kind of my overview of the closing. They're found at the end of verse 22, where Paul declares, O Lord, come. That's the whole... uh, uh, phrase that's made. Oh, Lord. You ever felt that? Oh, Lord, come. And those three English words, they come from a single word in the Aramaic that's used in the original writing here, uh, the kind of common um, language of the common person in those days was Aramaic. And that Aramaic word that he uses it's translated in English, O Lord, come. It's the Aramaic word Maranatha. And it means exactly as it's translated here, O Lord, come. And it's a prayer. And it is a prayer that communicates to the Lord, O Lord, come quickly. And the prayer is a response. This prayer, O Lord Jesus, come quickly. O Lord Jesus, come. That prayer is a response to a promise of Jesus, his promise to one day return. Jesus declared in John chapter 14, he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, speaking of heaven. And he said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The great event that's described there in terms of the biblical prophetic timeline is called the rapture of the church. And Paul describes it most specifically in his letter to uh, the, the Thessalonican church in his first letter to them in chapter 4, verse 16. Let me read it to you. Description of the rapture of the church. For the Lord himself, speaking of Jesus, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. 
And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And this event that the Bible describes as the rapture of the church is an imminent event. That is, it could happen at any time, uh, in an instant that it could occur, just as Jesus taught in the parable of the ten virgins. He said, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, the expectation of this imminent event of the rapture of the church, that this event could happen at any moment in time, this return of Jesus, that expectation is to mark the life of every single Christian. And it certainly marked the teaching and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote again to the church at Thessalonica in chapter 1. He said, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and the living God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul wrote to Titus, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. He said, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. It dominated Paul's life. It dominated Paul's thinking. It dominated his teaching that Jesus is coming back for his church to take us into a very prepared heaven. We could quote many, many verses more in this vein. And it marked the Christianity and the lives and the hearts of the early church. And it is one of the desires that the Holy Spirit brings into the life of every Christian. The Holy Spirit brings a desire into the life of every Christian for the appearing of the Lord Jesus. Revelation chapter 22, John wrote, and he said, And the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that is Christians, say, Come. The Holy Spirit is eager for Jesus' return. And he plants that expectation and that uh, eagerness for that within our hearts as Christians. Jesus himself desires every one of his followers, every one of us as Christians, to live with a daily expectation that today could be the day that he returns as he promised to, to take us into heaven. In fact, he so wants it to dominate our lives on a daily basis that he incorporated that great realization and expectation. He nurtures it in the prayer that he taught the disciples uh, to pray as a model for their praying. They came to Jesus, the apostles did one day, and they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. 
And Jesus said, after this manner, pray. And he gave him a model. Good for us today as well. But here was the prayer. He said, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the looking forward in that prayer is that daily consciousness of the fact that Jesus is returning. I long for his return. I want him to establish his kingdom in the world. And so this looking forward to Jesus' return, the rapture of the church, is not to be the characteristic of some fringe element of Christianity or some small group or select group or super spiritual group of Christians. It is to mark the Christianity, the Christian experience of every single follower of the Lord Jesus. Why? Why is that important? There are many reasons, but let me briefly give you three this morning. What this expectation produces in our lives. Number one, it produces a needed influence to live a pure life. John wrote in his first epistle, he said, Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he, that is Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, that is the hope of Jesus' return for us as Christians, and whoever has this hope in him, that is in Jesus, purifies himself just as he, that is Jesus, is pure. Why does it have a purifying influence in our life? Because if Jesus can return at any moment, then none of us wants the rapture of the church to occur while we're engaged in some kind of a sinful activity. We want that rapture to occur when we're found watching and waiting and working for the Lord. And so it has that influence upon our lives. Second, it also produces a needed urgency in our lives concerning the things of the Lord. When we realize that the Lord could come back for us today, then things that we would be prone to put off, the most important things in life, going to Costco and having those little Swedish meatballs that are in the hall. Now, I'm not talking about stuff like that. When we realize that the Lord could come back today, it makes us realize, well, who of my friends or who of my family or my neighbors Have I never shared the gospel with? Have I never spoken to about the things of the Lord? Because if the Lord takes me away today, then my opportunity to share with them is gone and it's lost. So it brings an urgency to our spirituality and our Christian life that we wouldn't otherwise have. Number three, it also brings and provides us with a great sense of comfort in our lives as we watch things grow worse and worse in the world. And to know anything about the Bible and what it has to say about the condition of the world and what the Bible describes as the last days, the time in human history immediately preceding uh, the, the rapture of the church, is to know that the world is going to become a very, very messy place. And it's going to be especially messy and difficult place and dangerous place 
for Christians. And that's why when Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, speaking in chapter 4 of the rapture of the church, he then closed that section by declaring, and therefore comfort one another with these words. And so there's the realization that the world could become uh, significantly difficult and dangerous for a child of God in the last days, that the lone comfort will not be a coming election, not for some miracle worker to arise in human history, some great leader, but the lone comfort that we have in the midst of the mess that we're in is that the Lord has promised to return and take us into the heaven that he has prepared us for. Uh, Many years ago now, I was listening to a Bible teacher, Tommy Ice, who was teaching on the rapture of the church right in this room. And we were streaming in an end times conference, I think, from Calvary Costa Mesa. And he was assigned to speak on the rapture. And he's his got this southern drawl and everything. I, I love accents. And, um, and, and I like that accent too, especially in a preacher, especially when it, they talk slow. It's just, it's a cadence that I just like. And uh, so he gets up and in, in his introductory remarks related to the rapture, he's talking mostly to Christians. It's a mostly Christian audience. And he says, What problem do you have in your life tonight that wouldn't be solved by the rapture? And the whole room started laughing. I laughed as well and uh, because it's the truth. It is a comfort for us. Whatever problem we have, the rapture of the church will solve that problem. We will head into a situation in which there are no problems. Now, the Bible teaches that no one knows the day or the hour of the rapture of the church, when Jesus is going to return to take us out of here. But in the Bible, God has provided us with prophetic signs so that we can know um, that the time and the season of his return is drawing near. Nobody will ever know the day or the hour, but we ought to be alert to Trends that show us that it's drawing near. Um, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, that chapter ends with talking about the rapture, therefore comfort one another with these words. But the very next verse, written in the context of the rapture of the church, chapter 5 verse 1, Paul went on to say, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, You have no need that I write to you. We don't know the day or the hour. We're not interested in it. Well, we may be interested in it, but we will not know it. Um, But we should know the times or the seasons that give us an indication that the day and the hour uh, is approaching. And as we see the prophetic picture described in the Bible kind of developing before our very eyes. We see the Bible says it's going to be like this. We see it becoming like that before our eyes. It produces within us a very deep and a very settled, mature, peace-producing, Jesus is returning in our hearts and in our minds. Bible prophecy is never given in order to terrify us as Christians. Oh, no, that's how terrible it's going to get. Ah! You know, it's not intended to produce that. 
God is greater than any human circumstance that he calls his people to be faithful in. So prophecy is never intended to terrify us. It's given to us so that as God's people, we are able to safely and clearly process world events, to see behind world events, and to realize, yes, what is happening in the physical realm before my eyes, though it looks chaotic, though it looks like it is out of control, humanly speaking, because I know the Bible and what it says about what the world is going to be like in the last days, I know that God is at work. Things are not out of control, but they are under his control, and he is marching human history to his God-appointed end. And prophecy produces that peace, that reassurance in our hearts, and it forces us then to say the Lord's return is drawing near, And as Jesus said, we begin to look up knowing that our redemption draws nigh. Now, allow me just a few uh, uh, to remind you of just a few of the prophecies in the Bible that communicate to us that Jesus' return is drawing near. For some of you, this is old uh, hat, and you're very, very familiar with this subject through the years. Never harmful to be reminded. For some of you, it's all entirely brand new. Follow along as long as you can and as much as you can. It won't be like, oh boy, this is so deep, I can't understand it. But some people are interested in these things more than others. And uh, But uh, here we go as we head into it. Fascinating as we think about the world that we're living in right now and trying to process world events in the light of the Lord's return. Fascinating to look at what the Bible has to say about what the world will look like geopolitically in, in the last days or in the end times. Those are the words that uh, God gives to hu- the age in human history that immediately precedes the rapture of the church and then uh, later Jesus' second coming. In Ezekiel's chapter uh, 36 through 39... We have God laying out a tremendous geopolitical picture of what the world is going to look like in the last days. In chapters 36 and 37, Ezekiel, 2,600 years ago, prophesied of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. He prophesies at a time when the children of Israel are in bondage in Babylon and And he makes this prophecy that they will return to the land. They will become a nation uh, once again. And uh, and then in one of the great miracles of human history, 2,600 years after the prophecy was given, May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation again. And it is the single great sign that we are in what the Bible calls the last days because God said through Ezekiel that it would occur in the last uh, days. Amazing miracle. Those that study these things, they say that in terms of human history, that no group of people have ever been displaced from a homeland or robbed of a homeland for a period of 
2,000 years and been able to hold together their uh, ethnic identity without being absorbed by the world as a whole. And yet the Jews did it. They maintained as a group of people until the day that they would then uh, once again become a nation, just as God said. One of the miracles in human history. In Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, and I'm not going to have you turn to it and dig all the way through it because I don't have the time to do that today. Just follow along as best as you can uh, related uh, to it. In chapters 38 and 39, Ezekiel describes a great military attack or an invasion that will be launched against Israel in the last days. And this invasion is uh, clearly intent upon the destruction of Israel, uh, to drive them into the sea is kind of the language of her enemies uh, uh, today. And this uh, invasion, this attempt to destroy her, uh, it, what is described, falls in line between the time of Israel becoming a nation once again, uh, May 14, 1948, and Jesus' second coming. What's described there is not the Battle of Armageddon. It's a completely different battle. Arm, battle of Armageddon occurs uh, much later, but it's a battle that precedes the Battle of Armageddon. I think it precedes it by seven years and It's a battle that will take place either immediately before the rapture of the church or immediately after the rapture of the church. In that passage in Ezekiel, we're told that Israel will be attacked by a major military power that exists to her far north. This is the language that's used by Ezekiel. And you pull out a map of Israel and you draw a line straight to the far north and you almost bisect the uh, capital city of the nation that is in the far north, and that city is Moscow. And, and so it talks about the fact that there will be a major military power that will attack her, and that military power exists to her far north. We know it today as Russia. The allies of this uh, uh, invasion that comes not only from the north but from other nations, the nations that join Gog, Magog, ancient names for modern-day Russia, that geographical area, are also listed in the passage. The allies of Russia, and among those that are listed is Iran, will join Russia in this attack upon Israel to destroy her. You can't pick up the newspaper, you can't go online, You can't study anything related to the Middle East without being forced to learn a great deal about uh, Iran these days. Constantly in the headlines, it is very instrumental in what's happening in the Middle East today and the instability of the Middle East. Iran has very, very close ties to Russia. They are very, very close partners on a lot of different levels. Iran funds... Two uh, of the Islamic terrorist organizations that pose the greatest threat currently to Israel and her survival. These two terrorist organizations openly engage Israel militarily, openly provoke her militarily, and those two groups are called Hamas and Hezbollah. 
And basically what's happening, we read the headlines and we say, Hamas is attacking Israel, and then Israel is counter-responding uh, in a counter-attack. And Hamas and Hamas and Hezbollah had the war against Israel from the north up in Lebanon uh, years ago, is poised to once again attack even today. But we read about Hezbollah, Hamas, Israel, Hamas, Hezbollah, Israel, all of this. And then very few people talk about Iran, not realizing those that study the things and are fairly conversant with it understand that this is essentially Iran engaged in a proxy war with Israel through these terrorist groups. Israel is, Iran is simply probing Israel, provoking Israel, trying to discover her strengths, her weaknesses, her limitations by using two Palestinian terrorist organizations to do it. But it's all Iran behind the scenes. Hamas is happy to do it. Hezbollah is happy to do it. But they are not the big person behind the scene in seeking the destruction of Israel uh, Iran is the one that is in the driver's seat there. In the Ezekiel's prophecy, he also mentions that northern Sudan will join uh, in this attack on Israel. And northern Sudan is the Islamic part of Sudan today. It also lists Libya as an ally. When we used to do prophecy updates years ago, we would talk about the fact that Libya is going to join this invasion against Israel. But we would have to kind of qualify it. We would have to say, well, you know, Muammar Gaddafi is the dictator over Libya. And he has now in recent years, uh, we used to say, now in recent years, he has become much more friendly toward the West. He wants to be accepted by the West. He's distancing himself from kind of fanatical uh, elements and all. And so keep your eye on Libya because someday all of that is going to change and it is going to one day join in this attack. And three years ago, Muammar Gaddafi, he is overthrown. As a dictator, he is assassinated, and today uh, Libya has imploded into chaos and into violence. Practically speaking, it's essentially run by a very broad group of uh, Islamic uh, heavily armed uh, militias. And so they fall into place in a way that they haven't fallen into place in this prophetic scenario in years. Turkey is mentioned as joining in uh, this alliance to attack and destroy Israel. Turkey has become much more of a provocator of Israel, much more openly open in its um, support of terrorist organizations and to operate an attack not openly and in front of the whole world against Israel, but content to do it through the uh, terrorist organizations that uh, they support, namely the Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, who became most famous in their overthrow of uh, Mubarak in Egypt during the Arab Spring, as it was called, came into power, a secular government, uh, dominated by the Egyptian military, knocked them out of uh, out 
out of power, but there's still a force in the Middle East. They're supported by Turkey, as is Hamas. And so Turkey is a secular government, but very much a Muslim nation, and by the month uh, demonstrating greater and greater open hostility toward uh, Israel. Now, the common denominator between all of Russia's allies in this attack is that they are Muslim-dominated nations. And as a result of being Muslims, they have no particular fondness for uh, Israel. So you say we have a tremendous grasp of the obvious. Well, what can I say? Uh, This is a gift that I have. So you say anybody can read that or know that and know that about all of those nations, that they're all unified by this thing, this religion called Islam. But remember, when Ezekiel wrote this prophecy 2,600 years ago, that he wrote that this prophecy concerning the alliance of these nations a thousand years before Islam came into existence. You would have, uh, you know, back in the... Uh, before Islam was established in the six, in the 617th century, before all of that, that got established, you would have looked at this prophecy of Ezekiel and you would have said to yourself, what in the world could bring this group of people who are just wild tribes that can't get along with one another? How would they unite together to join in an attack upon Israel back in the land. What in the world could do it? Because the religion didn't even exist in human history. But it came to exist in the 7th century, and it unites all of these nations in their hatred of the Jews and their desire to destroy the Jews and the nation of Israel. But not just a hatred against the Jews, but Christians and others as well. And, and so the common denominator is, uh, of these allies is the uh, uh, Muslim religion. Islam has united them. Now, what's fascinating is that not all Muslim nations in the Middle East uh, will join in this attack. And the ones that are listed as not joining in the attack are, are notable, noticeable in their absence. Let me say this. In terms of, of Russia and in terms of these Muslim allies set uh, to destroy Israel, every one of them is absolutely perfectly down to the minute details in place for becoming a part of what Ezekiel described 2,600 years ago. It's amazing. There isn't a thing like you'd have to say three years ago or the last time I taught on this or 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. Hey, it looks pretty complete, but there needs to be some development here. You need to watch this related to Iran, watch this related to Libya, watch this related to Egypt. No, all of that's off the table. There are no qualifiers now. Everything is in place like never before in human history. Now, the nations that won't join in this attack... One of them that's listed there by their ancient name is what we know today as Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia will not join in this invasion of Israel because though Saudi Arabia is a Muslim nation, today what they fear most is the further empowerment of Iran 
in the region, which they view as the greatest threat in the Middle East. And so Saudi Arabia and Iran are currently very bitter enemies in the region, and Iran is going to be a part of the attack. Saudi Arabia will not. That's the scenario in the Middle East that you woke up to this morning. Egypt will not be a part of the attack. They are not listed. For the, uh, and we know today that Egypt has a peace treaty with Israel. But here's a fascinating thing in terms of updating related to all of this. Remember when the Arab Spring occurred just two to three years ago? And all of these Arab nations were overthrown with the idea that they wouldn't set up a theocracy based upon uh, Islam, but that they would then set up a democracy. And Mubarak was overthrown, and our government had a very big part in that, sad to say, in the destabilizing of that, uh, of that country. Mubarak was no um, uh, gem, He was a strong man. He was a dictator. But he kept the uh, Muslim extremists from taking over the country and producing an Islamic state in, in Egypt. Well, we betrayed him in a way that caused all of our allies in the rest of the world to look at us as a government and say, you can't trust them, not left, not right, not up, not down. It was an incredible... Uh, betrayal to to, uh, one of the few allies that we had in the region, a a reliable ally in the region. So he was overthrown and when they were, uh, when they were, he was overthrown, then the Muslim Brotherhood came into power. They were elected into power and took over the country. And this is a fanatical group hostile toward Israel. And so every one of us who knew something about Ezekiel 38 and 39 said, this throws a monkey wrench in the whole prophetic picture. It isn't that it isn't going to happen, but it delays the timetable. Because if uh, Russia invaded Israel with Iran and so forth and so forth and so forth, the other allies, Egypt under the Muslim Brotherhood would have readily joined the invasion because of their extreme hatred of Israel. And so he thought, oh no, what? this is a, a different thing that's happened in Egypt. But then what's happened just in the last year is that the military of Egypt overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood, outlawed them, put a new kind of strongman dictator in place, and returned it to a secular nation with a Muslim population. And it is back on track in terms of cordials, as cordial as they can be, relationship uh, with the Jews, as cordial as it can be between uh, the Jews and any other Arab nation. Jordan is not mentioned as joining in the attack. And, of course, they have a peace treaty with Israel and have long had a peace treaty with Israel. When we, with other nations, when we initiated the Arab Spring a number of years ago and basically uh, set wildfires across the Middle East, what happened in destabilizing the governments of so many nations at that time, it terrified every government in the Middle East because many of these governments are in place where the boundaries are artificial boundaries established 
after World War II, you have various tribes that have been forced together by political boundaries. And very often in these countries, you have a minority group of people who are from one tribe and they rule over uh, a majority within the nation who are of another tribe or group of tribes. And so they're vulnerable to being overthrown simply on the basis of numbers. And there's a lot of countries that are like that. Saudi Arabia is like that. Um, a, a Jordan is one of those countries. So today, you have a real possibility of one day the majority population in, in Jordan of destabilizing the nation and overthrowing the minority group that is ruling Jordan and then saying the contract, the peace treaty with uh, Israel is null and void. But that's not the scenario that we have today. E- Jordan does not join the attack. It currently has a peace treaty with Israel. Again, the point that I'm making is Every single detail, it excites me because I have followed all of this since 1980 when I became a Christian. Prophecy fascinates me. The degree to which this prophecy is developed geopolitically without qualification is astonishing in terms of speaking of the fact that we are in the last days and should be looking like never before for the Lord's return. Iraq is not mentioned as joining in in this invasion of Israel. And of course, uh, in terms of right now, we see why. They're fighting for their own stability. They're fighting for their own uh, survival. And they have no army to field in any kind of an invasion like that. Syria is in the same place. If Syria was not in the civil war that it is currently in, Syria, that government and the people of Syria, they hate the Jewish state. They would join any invasion against Israel. Why are they not listed? Because right now they're in their own civil war and not in a place to join in any other invasion. Again, not only are the nations who are named to become a part of that invasion in place, but each one that isn't named is uh, tantalizingly perfectly in place for why they cannot and would not at this moment in time. Now, the geopolitical world, again, that Ezekiel described prophetically 2,600 years ago, it's the exact geopolitical situation of the Middle East this morning, but also concerning Russia, led by Mr. Putin. Mr. Putin is... He is less a communist and more a nationalist. He loves Russia. He believes in Russia. He believes in the greatness of the motherland. And he longs for the greatness of Russia to be restored and for her to know her former greatness. And Russia today, as you've seen in the headlines in the last year or so, actually a little bit longer, but very intensively in the last few months, Russia has no qualms 
about using its military in order to extend its greatness, to extend its influence. It did so in invading the country of Georgia, uh, Georgia in 2008. It did so in, in, in annexing and invading a sovereign part of the Ukraine earlier this year, known as Crimea. It is currently doing the very same thing in its attempt to turn eastern Ukraine uh, back into its fold. That's happening as a part of our daily headlines at this time, too. And with hardly a significant peep or a pushback from the rest of the world, and specifically the Western world, Russia is very, very much at this point in time in an aggressive, expansionist mode. Now, concerning the Middle East, the recent Arab Spring that began two or three years ago, again, that we played a significant part in encouraging, it has turned into a nightmare in the Middle East. And that nightmare is far from over. If I was in Israel, I would hate the United States uh, government. Here you are thousands of miles away, and you set on fire deliberately all of the nations that weren't on fire all around us. You destabilize this region all around us and then go on about your business. You can't believe how hard you've made life for us. But think about what the Arab Spring has done to the common Arab person, the common persons in these nations where things weren't ideal. They won't be till the Lord returns. But think about how hard things have become as revolution has engulfed these nations and the average person doesn't know where they're going to find bread or clean water or food for their children or medical care. Think about the Christians in the Middle East who are being slaughtered by the thousands on the basis of an Arab Spring that we were instrumental in launching. It is destabilized the entire Middle East, putting most governments in, uh, in the area that aren't already in chaos, uh, even the strongest of governments, uh, into danger. And it has massively emboldened Muslim extremists in their goal to, number one, destroy Israel, and then, number two, conquest or conquer the world. And these nations, since that the uh, that are in this Islamic revolution that's going on, they sense and know that the West has no stomach for another war in the Middle East, and they recognize that because we don't, we have withdrawn. Europe has withdrawn. And, and we're not looking to engage militarily any longer in that part of the world, if ever we should have. I'm not talking militarily here. But what they recognize is that they may have the opportunity of a generation to strike and destroy Israel. Again, which is what Hamas, Iran is doing through Hamas and Hezbollah today in their probing action. Islam is not and never has been 
a religion of peace. It is always expanded on the basis of violence from its very, very in, uh, inception. The peace that Islam talks about, and it does talk about peace, but the peace that Islam seeks to establish in the world is the peace that comes with bringing the entire world into submission to Allah. And that is why you've been reading in the last few weeks that the Christians who have been caught in the crossfire of the wars and ISIS there in Iraq are now being given the ultimatum of committing to Islam, converting to Islam, or uh, having their throats slit or paying a tax uh, that historically Muslims have uh, placed on, needed upon Christians uh, who do not convert uh, to Islam. And so there isn't a peace, there isn't the idea of trying to get along with everyone. It's always been world domination. It's a part of the religion and it's a part of what they're called to. And what is happening uh, with Islam today is that we are engaged in a religious war. They're engaged in a religious war against the world, but the rest of the world is alarmingly slow in recognizing it. They know they're engaged in a religious war. The West doesn't know that they are engaged in a that this is a war. It's a religious war. It will not end with Israel. If they destroyed Israel tomorrow, it would simply move on to the next part of the agenda. That's what they are called to do, and that's what they are determined to do. Now, the West will never know a war with uh, Islam the way that Israel knows a war with, uh, with Islam uh, because Israel will never be defeated by Islam or by anybody. That attack of those confederation of nations, Ezekiel speaks about the fact that when they do attack, that they will be destroyed. Seven-eighths of their army will be destroyed. It will be a complete destruction of those military, of that military. Israel will never, ever cease to be a nation in human history until uh, Jesus' second coming. Things get very messy in the tribulation period. I'll grant you that. But but this idea, but because Israel takes so much of the focus of the Muslim world, we tend to think it's just Israel and Islam, Islam and Israel, Israel and Islam. Why can't those people just figure things out? Why can't they just sit down and solve this? It's an age-old problem. They're never going to do it. Just leave them alone. Let them work it out. Let's just go on out about our business out over here. It's completely naive. Because it isn't just about Israel. Israel is target number one, but the whole world is target number two. And it is only because Israel is absorbing so much of the attention and so much of the military action that we're able to skate along in the rest of the world without uh, the problems that they face on a a daily uh, basis. And so I think one of the reasons that the West doesn't recognize it or willing to accept it as a religious war is that we've lost sight of the fact that um, there's so 
there's such a, a, a diminishing portion of the population uh, has religious convictions. That's one of the things about being a Christian. You understand religious conviction. You understand there are things that we will live for. There are things that we will die for. I remember when I went into the church downtown on 10th and F, and uh, the it was when uh, under President Clinton and... Uh, uh, Janet Reno was the attorney general at that time, and they invaded the compound in Waco. And I walked into the office, and they had set up a TV with rabbit ears and everything, and the whole compound's on fire, and gunshots, and the whole thing is on TV. And I thought to myself, nobody in this administration must have religious convictions at all, because you would never attack a compound like that if you understand religious convictions. People will die for these convictions and to think you're going to just walk in and take that over that way and that they aren't going to do what exactly what they did uh, somebody doesn't understand religion and they don't understand uh, those kind of convictions and i think the west is slow to understand that this is a global war that's going on that it's a global enemy and it will have to be defeated in the same way that communism and other enemies of of mankind in the past have needed uh, to be defeated we could go on and we could talk about uh, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 17 that talks about the fact that in the following the rapture of the church right at the beginning of the great tribulation or the tribulation period that the Antichrist will come into power. He is the first seal that is broken of the seals that are broken in the tribulation period, the revelation of the Antichrist that he will lead a confederation of nations out of the old Roman uh, Empire and he will take those, those confederations of nations and he will make it the final world-ruling empire before Jesus' second coming. And so as we look around the world today geopolitically, broadening out of the Middle East, we ask ourselves, can we find a confederation of nations that exists in the area of the old Roman Empire, that is Europe, some of which are strong, some of which are weak, which also has also found a way of uniting together in a way that has not required that its member nations lose their individual national identities and that this unification of nations has the population base, the industrial base, the technological base to dominate the world if it was led by the right leader? And, of course, the answer is yes, and it's called the European Union. And things will become such in the world following the rapture of the church that this section of the world will turn their sovereignty over to uh, the Antichrist. These nations will, and they will say, make us into something great or make us into something, uh, given whatever the circumstances are. All of it's spoken about in Revelation chapter 17. I ask myself, why in the world would any group of nations, why would one nation in Europe, let alone a whole confederation of nations, as the Bible describes, be willing in human history to come to a lone man, the Antichrist, 
No matter how charismatic he is, no matter how supernatural he is, he will be uh, 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 possessed by the devil himself. But why would they turn over the authority and sovereignty of their nations to one person in that way? And one of the answers, I think, to, to it can be that the world at that time could be so destabilized, such a dangerous place, that they look and say, it's time for desperate measures. We're willing to turn over this kind of power and this kind of authority to someone who has vision and ability to make us into something great and into something safe. And I tell you, I understand it. Look at the world that we live in. Look at how much of the world is in this place of destabilization. Everybody in the whole world's in a panic over it that keeps their eye on the ball. And I understand people that don't keep their eye on the ball, and I'm killing you right now. All you want to know is whether the Giants are going to beat the Dodgers today. And I get all of that. I, I want to escape all of it. I can't wait... I can't wait for college football to start. I can't wait for the NFL to start. So I can have a distraction from all of this stuff, a recess. I've watched hardly any sports at all since the end of the NBA playoffs because I don't care for baseball that much. That's my fault. That's not a reflection on baseball. It's a problem with me. I just don't get the game that much. And I was no good at it. I was no good at football either. But those people are slaughtering one another out in that field all the time. And I happen to watch that. It's the latest version of gladiators, you know. So I like all this. But I can't, I understand, tune all of it out. I don't care. I just want to think about what we're going to have for dinner tonight. And then what game can we watch afterwards? I get all of that. But you look at the world in which we live in and people who want to ignore it, even they can't ignore it because of how we have destabilized the world and how destabilized and dangerous it is. The world is on fire today in a way that it hasn't been in most of our lifetimes And the fact of the matter is, is that the world does need, at this point in human history, the United States to be great and to be good and to be an influence for peace in the nation, in in the world. And when we vacate that position, and I'm not advocating war, but when we vacate that place, And then we destabilize within our own nation the number of things that we have destabilized. When you destabilize an economy, you destabilize a nation's health care, you destabilize a nation's borders, you destabilize every relationship you have with every foreign ally, you destabilize the entire Middle East and so forth, there comes a point where you introduce so much change and instability into a nation and into a world that you think you can still control, but then you do one more thing and you lose control of all of it. 
to where even the United States of America cannot put the genie back into the bottle. And sometimes that one more thing is something you didn't plan, but it just happened in human history. And everybody has the sense that there is too much open, there is too much destabilized, there is too much that is in play right now, and it's putting the whole world in danger. If you own a business that has ten major departments, and you're going to change that business, you don't bring change and destabilize all ten departments or eight departments You change one or two, make the changes that are needed, stabilize it, make it strong, change the next two. You don't destabilize the whole thing because you can kill the entire business. It can run out of your control by things that are beyond your control. And there's that sense in the world today that this thing is a very, very volatile place and it's just going to take one epidemic, one more war, one more economic meltdown, and this thing becomes a free-for-all. And people recognize it. And they are afraid as a result of it. And when you have that much instability, that much destabilization in a world, then people become desperate and they will turn unbelievable power and authority over to someone who is highly charismatic and uh, even if that person is the devil himself. We could go on and talk about the moral condition of the last days. I don't have time uh, to do it and talk about this, all of these things literally for hours. But just let me close in this way. I just wanted to say, if you ever wake up one morning and you discover that Israel's a nation again, and she's surrounded by enemies who desire her destruction, including a major military power to her north, and that the area of the world that constituted the core of the old Roman Empire is made up of a confederation of nations that has the population base, the industrial base, the technological base to dominate the world if it had the right leader. If you wake up to a world that is in free fall, morally headed in the wrong direction, then in the words of Jesus, we should be looking up knowing that our redemption draws nigh, that his return is near, and make it our prayer, the very words of the Apostle Paul, as he describes them here, Maranatha, the prayer to God, O Lord, come, to be the prayer in our hearts. God gives us prophecy in the Scripture, not so that we will be terrified by world conditions, but that we will as Christians look behind what we're seeing in the physical and to realize, no, it looks like it's out of control, but it is not out of control. The God who gave us these prophecies is in control of human history, and he is working it toward his God-appointed end. But it will require on our part maintaining that focus. And part of maintaining that focus is to say on a regular basis, even a daily basis, Maranatha, O Lord, come. 
There's a man named Larry Anderson. I close with this. He's a, he was the pastor of Cal, one of the pastors at Calvary Chapel of Napa when Karen and I got saved and going with the Lord and ended up pastoring a church, Calvary Chapel in Feeling, California. And he's not in the active, he's not leading the church any longer. He's retired, but serving the Lord all over the world. You know how that kind of thing goes. And so 30 years ago or 35 years ago, I'm a new Christian in 1980 and I'm following prophecy like crazy on everything. And, and so I catch him after a service and said, Larry, you know, Gog, Magog, Russia, this, and then this. And, and it was all, well, what if this happens? This comes together, maybe this and the whole, and I'm all frantic about everything. And Larry would just say, you know, Maranatha, the Lord's coming. I punched him. How in the world could you stay so calm in the middle of all of this when I'm all frantic and everything, uh, you know, about the whole deal? And he would say, you know, the Lord is coming back. And I think to myself, that's right. That's where this is all supposed to lead me, not to going crazy about what's going on in the world, but to realize, no, it means that the Lord is coming back. And it's still a good word today. And his return for us, the rapture of the church, it is the solution for every problem we have in our lives. And it is oh so close and the biblical scenario is so fulfilled before our very eyes. He could come at any minute. And so this morning, we want to exchange any terminal case of the ain't awfuls. I know all about them. For the peace of knowing, no, it's not out of control. It appears to be so, humanly speaking. But God is in charge of Everything, he's working it toward his end, including the rapture of the church. Oh, Lord, come. He knew it would become our prayer at the end of the age. And it's a good prayer because it's the only hope for us and it's the only hope for the world. Let's stand together and we'll pray. And so we pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that the anxiousness, the concern, the sense of uncertainty, the franticness, Lord, all of these things that we feel like everybody else, as we look at the proverbial world on fire all around us, we realize you've got something better for us. And we pray that right now, by your Holy Spirit, that you would replace all worry and fret and concern with that simple phrase, Maranatha, O Lord, come. And so we pray this morning, Lord. Lord Jesus, come quickly. And Holy Spirit, keep us empowered and keep us busy about God's business in these last days. May this knowledge of Jesus' return create an urgency in us we wouldn't otherwise have, a concern for purity that we wouldn't otherwise have, and a comfort that we wouldn't otherwise know. And we ask these things, knowing that you hear our prayers and answer our prayers, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.